Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. And as promised last week, I am returning back to this story of the faith of the centurion, and I want to unpack a little bit today uh, verses 10 through 12. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And these, this is an interaction of our Savior with those who believe in Him. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pause at this point of our worship to thank you for your word. You have given us much. And today, Lord, we ask that you show us in your word the truth of our eternal destinies. Everyone in this room has an eternal destiny that, Father God, you decide. And those of us who are bought by the blood of your Son, who with humility of faith, we have an eternal hope. This is what the centurion shows us in his interaction with our Lord. But those who are even considered the sons of the kingdom, those, dear Father, who embrace their birthright or perhaps have said, I have heard the gospel, so I am clean, Jesus shows a very dire outcome. Well, that's hard for us to hear. And so, God, I pray at this moment, in this hour, you would cause your mercies to be poured out upon each and every one of us as we hear the words of your your Son, our Savior, dear God, that you would give us wisdom, understanding, show us our position before your throne. What is our eternal destiny? What does it look like? Lord, we need you. So please speak at this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. God bless you guys. Let's begin our morning in God's word with a reminder of what role faith plays in salvation. Amen. Let's remember exactly what the word of God says. It's clear in scripture that our action of faith, our action of believing, is not salvation. I want to make sure we understand the difference here. To act in faith, to act in belief, does not mean that salvation is ours. There's a difference. Faith, is while it's not salvation itself, faith is clearly a significant, it's a conduit to salvation. Faith is the conduit to salvation. Faith is not salvation itself. And this is where many in the church will miss the gospel. I believe in Jesus, so I must be saved. Notice what I said. It's all about me. I believe. I have faith. Therefore, I am saved. Faith is not salvation. Faith is the conduit to the Savior 
who saves. That's important for us to see here. We see in John chapter 6, verse 44, and this is the words of our Savior, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Salvation is that which is begun by God the Father. And notice the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, no one can come to me. Coming to Christ, who is the Savior, is the point. Jesus saves. Hebrews chapter 11, we know, is the faith chapter. And when you read that entire chapter, there's a repeated common phrase. It's a common truth, by faith. That's the phrase in Hebrews chapter 11, repeated numerous times. By faith, so-and-so trusted the Lord. By faith, they are counted as righteous. By faith, this, that, and the other. So by faith indicates it, that, that faith is a conduit. It's, an, it, it's a, an avenue to trusting God's provision. And in Hebrews chapter 11, this faith was God's provision for the patriarchs that were mentioned in the chapter. None of the patriarchs of the Old Testament mentioned in Hebrews 11 knew who Jesus was. Yet by faith, they are counted as righteous, and they're lifted up in Hebrews 11 in that hall of faith, the ones to look to as examples. Faith was their path to salvation in Jesus Christ, and what a faith. They didn't even know who Jesus was, yet by faith they knew that salvation was promised by their Savior, by their Lord God Almighty. Faith led them to what salvation is. Hebrews chapter 12 even continues, verses 1 through 2. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to the witnesses of Hebrew 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Underline this if you have it in your Bible. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Faith was founded by Christ. He perfected faith. Faith is what causes us to look to the Savior, not to our own. Faith is that which draws us to turn our eyes to the salvation possible through Jesus Christ. So why is this important in our study? In Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, why does this, this significant? Because the centurion is counted as having faith this is what our Savior Jesus says, and he has not found any faith like his anywhere in Israel. A Gentile, a Roman centurion, a pagan, had more faith in Christ than the religious folk. And Jesus made an important point here. So Jesus clearly observes the difference. This is what he's telling us in Matthew chapter 8, that there is a clear difference between the genuine faith of a pagan Roman centurion and the acts of faith from the, quote, sons of the kingdom, the Jews. He says there's a clear distinction here. And that's what I want us to understand today in, this, in today's under, look at uh, verses 10 through 12. What is it that Jesus is saying is the final outcome of faith? And it's a, it's a reality of the Gospels that we skip over too often because it is hellfire and brimstone preaching. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and get all red-faced and yell and scream and stomp. That's the way we associate this type of preaching. We're going to look at what the Gospels say and let God speak. 
So let's look closely at this difference because the eternal results differ between these two approaches to faith. This is what Jesus is saying. Remember last week we saw that Jesus welcomed, I think he welcomes in the Roman centurion to the kingdom of heaven because he indicates here that uh, I tell you many will come, verse 11, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That is following his acknowledgement. Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I think he's indicating the Roman centurion will be there at the table with the patriarchs in heaven. I think it's a very clear distinction. But he's going to be there not because of his actions or because of his pedigree. He didn't have one that was recognized. He's going to be there because he trusted Jesus, and that's what faith is. His faith was genuine. So much so that he said, Jesus, if I don't even, you don't even need to come to my house. I trust your word because I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I trust that if you will save my servant, that's enough. That's faith. He trusted Christ. So verse 11 continues Jesus' thought to the end times. That's what we're seeing. In verse 11, Jesus is transitioning here from the acknowledgement of the centurion's faith to a very clear proclamation of what the end times will look like. What does eternity look like for those who have faith versus those who think that they are secure. Notice this. Jesus says, he talks about the banquet, the wedding feast, where the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be, and this Roman centurion, he clearly seems to be welcome there. But in verse 12, Jesus shifts his praise to condemnation, and that's what I want us to focus on today, his condemnation for the sons of the kingdom who will be thrown into outer darkness. Who are these sons of the kingdom? Now, that's interesting language from our Savior. I think it's a little bit of irony here that he's not not pulling punches. He's being a little sarcastic toward the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, who feel that their inheritance of the kingdom was secured by their birthright. And so the sons of the kingdom is is a little bit of a jab to those who feel that they have an eternal destiny. What is this darkness that he talks about? What are, who are the sons of the kingdom? The sons of the kingdom, are they clearly those Jews who place their faith in their birthright? And they do not place their faith in Christ alone. Jesus is making a clear distinction here. The Jews trusted their lineage to Abraham as the guarantee to be the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. They, that's, that's, their, that's what they put their faith in. They were the rightful heirs. But clearly here Jesus implies that they'll be cast out. You see that? They are the false sons of the kingdom. That's what he implies here. He's, he's using a little bit of irony. You sons of the kingdom who think that you are so holy, you will be cast out into outer darkness. So what we see here is that they trusted their loyalty to the Mosaic law. These, and we know that the Mosaic law, that was rules for morality, that did then show us the need for a Savior. That's what the purpose of the law was. It was intended to show all sinners 
their need for a Savior. That's what the law was. And so these sons of the kingdom, quote-unquote, these false sons of the kingdom, they were really, they practiced a self-serving faith, a faith that is not in Christ. And the result was an eternal, is, is going to be an eternal torment in outer darkness. You see that? An eternal torment in outer darkness. Let's look here. Let's take a look a little bit closer. What does he say here in verse 12? While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's an interesting reward for those who feel that they're righteous. You see the twist of words here that Jesus is saying. Now, how do we get this idea of uh, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth? If you flip over to Psalm 112, Jesus is he's clearly referencing a very common idea in the Psalms, Psalm 112. And I want to read verse 4 in contrast to verse 10. And I, it's a small uh, uh, psalm. It's only 10 verses. We won't read them all today. But I encourage you to dwell on this psalm this week if you go back and meditate on the text. Psalm 112, verse 4, speaking of the righteous. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. But then in contrast to verse 10, the wicked man sees it and is, and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Now, in verse 10 of Psalm 112, what's, what is the wicked man angry at? It's what is mentioned in verse 9. The righteousness of God is, that is given to the poor is what the wicked is angry at. You ever been around somebody that gets angry with you whenever you mention Jesus, whenever you actually just enjoy being redeemed and you're just happy about it. You never notice how a, a wicked sinner gets angry at it? That's what Jesus is referring to here. Those who hear the truth of the gospel, yet they respond with wicked anger, gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth against the truth of the gospel. That's what he's referring to here. Because, I mean, if you've ever been around people who are self-serving and they don't get their way, how do they respond to one another? It's like a pack of dogs or a cat fight, weeping and gnashing of teeth, trying to grab and claw to get what they want. You see the imagery here that Jesus is pointing out here? So if our faith is centered in our self-serving needs, and we don't get what we need or want, how do we react? With weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in this outer darkness and the end of time, that those who reject the gospel, they are cast out into outer darkness. That's what they will endure forever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth because everybody who's there did not get what they wanted. And even in hell, they're going to try to demand what they want and they're still not going to get it. And so it's just going to be an, it's going to be an elevated continuation of how we react here on earth. And then some. The wicked man sees this righteousness and is angry about it. 
and he gnashes his teeth, and he melts away, and the desire of the wicked will perish because the light has dawned, the light of righteousness is evident. That's what Jesus is saying. So clearly Jesus is referring here in in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, he's referring directly to the eternal spiritual warfare between light and darkness. Let's not miss that point. He's talking about something that is outside of our corporeal understanding of reality. And and the best way you can describe the spiritual is through imagery and language, even poetry even, if necessary. It's the only way to even try to grasp what is beyond grasping. But it's important, it's true. So this passage describes the eternal future of both the sinners and the saints. And who determines that future? Christ himself, our Lord. There's a struggle between light and the darkness. We even see this in John chapter 1 when when John's gospel introduces in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. In in John chapter 1 verse 5, speaking of the Word coming in, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So this imagery of lightness and darkness is all through Scripture. And whenever we see the idea of darkness in the Word of God, it always relates to the satanic forces of spiritual warfare. That's what we're looking at here. So when Jesus says that the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, what's he saying? He implies the handover of the self-defined righteous people, the piety people, to the dark powers. That's what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 8 as he's interacting with the centurion. He's saying, you self-righteous people, you sons of the kingdom, I'm going to hand you over to the powers of darkness. I'm sorry, today's sermon's pretty heavy. I'm sorry about that. Folks in the church who have a sense of security, Jesus may be talking about you. I don't know. We've got folks that, I, mean, I have baptized folks over the, my, my 10, 15 years as a pastor that I know are no longer in the church, and I weep for them. They have a false sense of security because the pastor baptized them. And they've walked away from the church. Jesus makes it clear, if your hope is in your own self-righteousness, your hope is not in Christ. And he says you'll be cast into darkness. Darkness. It's the context of Scripture here. It's not so much the absence of light as really a revolt against the light. When we see this in Scripture, it's not just simply that light is absent. It's a direct revolt against it. That's what the outer darkness is. More specifically, the biblical view sees the demonic. It's not simply the absence of the holy divine or or negating against it. Instead, it's the dark forces that are active agents against the heavenly powers, but at the same time, these dark forces are active agents of the divine. God is in control even of the dark powers. We see that even here as Jesus is speaking. You will be cast out into the outer darkness. Who's in control of that? The one passing judgment. 
So his true home, and when we look at this, we, we see here that the demonic then is not necessarily a, 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 a negative opposite of the good. That's what pagan religions say. They say there is there are two forces that are equal, the good and the bad, the light and the dark. That's not what Scripture says. The light and the dark are not equal powers. It's the light that controls even the dark. So when we talk about darkness, we're talking about a distortion or a perversion of the good. That's what we're talking about. And so the devil here, when we're looking at the dark forces, we are clearly thinking about satanic forces and the fall of Satan. And so the devil here, we know, rebelled against God's divine authority at some point in, in history. None of us were there. We, we get the impression that it probably occurred before creation was fulfilled and complete or probably during that. We don't know exactly when that occurred. There's a lot of, when you read some of the... Uh, um, some of the uh, ancient uh, historical books of the Jewish tradition, they refer a lot more to this. Some of the apocryphal books allude to how this occurred. It's not part of the canon of Scripture, but that's really the only thing we know about what occurred and when. And even then, it's very elusive. But we do know that in Ezekiel chapter 28, the devil is clearly referred to as the one who was cast out of heaven due to his pride in his own beauty. Does that not sound self-righteous and self-serving? Look how beautiful I am. I am the most beautiful angel in heaven. That was Satan's fall. And he was cast down. That was Ezekiel 28. So now we know that the devil's true home, whenever we see in Scripture, he is always found in the desert or in the sea or in the darkness. But we do know that the devil's final destination is the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. We know that this is God's final judgment upon this angelic rebellion. And so the Bible speaks of two kingdoms, one of light, one of darkness. God has dominion over both. Let's not forget that. But God is the Savior only of the kingdom of light. He's not the Savior of the kingdom of darkness by his own authority and sovereignty. He is the, so he is the sovereign Savior of the kingdom of light. So we see here in the biblical narrative that this present fallen world is the battleground between light and darkness. You could even say that Jesus and Satan have this cosmic battle going on. Now, Jesus has finished. The, he, he's, he's won the battle. He crushed the serpent's head at the cross and at the resurrection. He's already won. Yet there will be a final battle, according to Revelation 20, at the end of time that will seal it all and get it done. The war will be over. So there's this constant war going on right now that we are actually a part of as the kingdom of heaven. So Revelation chapter 20, you don't have to turn it if you want to, but if you want to take notes, Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, talks about the final white throne of judgment. And at the end of history, Revelation tells us that when Satan and his demons are they're finally defeated in this final great spiritual battle. The devil will be banished, and he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. That's why we know that that's his eternal destination. He will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever, according to verse 10. Why do we emphasize this? Because we know that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, Satan is released from prison. 
He deceives the nations. There is a final end of the times battle. And Satan, his demons, and I will also argue from the texts of Scripture, everyone who is deceived by him as well or cast into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's an important distinction because there is a false idea in the church. It's not a new idea. It's been around for a very long time that if God is a merciful and loving God, yes, he may pass judgment, but in the end time, end of all time, when it's all said and done, God in his love and his mercy would never cause those he created to suffer eternally. That would just be, that would be an angry God, and I serve a loving God. It's called annihilationism. It's a false idea. And so what we read in, in Scripture is from, from Matthew chapter 8 and this outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth, and in Revelation 20, torment day and night forever and ever and ever. That doesn't sound like annihilation to me. What is annihilation? Annihilation is this idea that a loving and compassionate God would never cause eternal torment. Annihilation is the answer to a liberal theology as a final act of mercy. God's final act of mercy is, yes, he has caused punishment for those who are uh, unredeemed, those who are sinners, those who are rebellious against the gospel. He has caused punishment, but after a certain period of time, God in his mercy will just annihilate their existence and they will no longer be. I don't see that in Scripture. We don't see this in Matthew chapter 8. We don't see it in Revelation chapter 20. There will be several more texts in Matthew's gospel. We'll get back to that. This theme will return. Well, we'll come back again and again as Jesus brings this idea back. It is a liberal theology that is wrong. It's very unbiblical. But it's not a new idea. One of the early church fathers by the name of Origen, if you've ever heard that name, he was around in the first couple of centuries of the church. He believed that the devil and his angels, even this is how far he went with it, he argued that the devil and his angels would be delivered from their torment eventually and restored with the holy angels. In other words, he said, a righteous God will cause punishment even over the devil and his angels, but after a length of time in eternity, God's mercy will even restore them. And the punishment is only in measurement to the severity of the sin. You see where that weird, twisted idea goes? It's, it's, if we say from Scripture that God will not punish sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Sounds good, but it's not biblical. The error here is that punishment has limits. Well, if punishment has limits, then you could argue then reward has limits. Well, here's the twisted irony. No one says that the reward, the blessing and reward of heaven is limited. It's eternal. Yet somehow people want to say that God's punishment of sin is limited. You see where the twist is? If our eternal blessing is eternal, hallelujah. Y'all can say amen on that one. <laughs> Likewise, punishment is also eternal. If God were to limit the punishment of sin, he will also then have to limit the blessing of reward. 
That don't make sense. So likewise, this idea of annihilationism that has come back in, in our modern times, uh, if you, back, back about 10 years ago, around 2010, 2011, there was a guy by the name of Rob Bell. I don't know if you remember that name or not. His books are still being published, ironically. Uh, he, he wrote this book called Love Wins. And it was a book about, in the end times, God's love wins because even though you may suffer punishment in hell, God won't keep you there forever. He'll eventually restore you or annihilate you to where you have no more existence and you will no longer suffer. Rightly so, the evangelical community rose up against this publication of of lies and said no more. And also, and this really... Over the years, it really has bothered me because I've really enjoyed another great theologian by the name of John Stott. If you've ever read John Stott's works, he's solid. He's a solid, solid theologian. But in the last last years of his life, he embraced a call for at least discussing the legitimacy of this annihilationism because of a God who is merciful. I don't know if he fully embraced it to the point he said it has to be true, or he just called for a, let's talk about it because there might be some truth in it. It still bothers me that he did. Even though I, I don't discard his books, okay? This is not cancel culture. It's, a, it's ironic that conservative Christians want to cancel good theological works just because at the end of their life somebody fell from grace. Let's just get rid of all their stuff. Yet then they cry, then they cry foul whenever the liberal side wants to cancel us. That's Yes, there's some problems here with John Stott at the end of his life and his theology that I, I, I have problems with, but most of his work is, is solid and it's good. You see, so this error of a merciful God who will not cause eternal torment is the problem, and it has crept into the church because we want comfort. Yet here in Matthew chapter 8, we, do, we, we see, see Jesus' words very clearly. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know it will be an eternal torment, night and day, forever and ever. But think about this. A little bit of hope here in the midst of a dark sermon. Those who are redeemed in Christ have hope. We're delivered from the outer darkness because we are free in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If we have inherited the kingdom of light, if we are part of the kingdom of light, we have been qualified by the Father, not by ourselves. It is the Father in heaven who has qualified us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So where is our hope? Where is the kingdom of light? It's very clear that it is in the kingdom of the Son, the kingdom of Christ, in whom we have redemption. That's where the hope of our faith lies. Our faith lies in the fact that Jesus Christ provides the forgiveness of sins that brings us into by his design and by his decision, we are brought into the kingdom of light. We don't decide that we're part of the kingdom of light. The Lord Almighty does. And when we place our faith in that hope, when we place our faith and surrender and say, I am a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, dear God, qualify me. 
He qualifies us by His mercy, by His sovereignty, by His grace. Why is that important? Because what Jesus is referring to here as well in Matthew 8, chapter 12, or chapter 8, verse 12, he's also clearly talking about what has been commonly called in Scripture the great day of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The great day of the Lord is coming. Period. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we also see the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. So the idea that I have plenty of time to decide that I want to be a Christian, you don't have the time. If you're waiting for your own decision to make, it, make you feel good, if you are waiting for the right moment when it's appropriate for my time of life, my family, when they're raised and they're grown and I have time for the Lord, then I'll decide. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, according to 1 Thessalonians 5. The day of the Lord is both a day of judgment and a day of grace. That's a, that's, so you see what we're saying? The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, but it's also a day of grace. And so this day is going to mark the final victory of God over the enemies of darkness. And so the biblical understanding of the day of the Lord is seen in this idea of the fullness of time in Galatians chapter 4, when time itself will be taken up into eternity. So there will be a, time, there will be a future time where our current time will be drawn up into eternity. At that point, that's the day of the Lord. What does that look like? That means that everything that we know is time is going to shift and change. There will be an eternal kingdom. There will be an eternal... The, the city of Jerusalem... <laughs> will eventually come back and establish another kingdom on this earth that will be eternal. Time will shift. This day signals the inauguration of the kingdom of light. As the kingdom of Christ initiates a new order, this age to come is the final eternal kingdom of God. We know that a realized, it's called the realized eschatology. That's the term. We already know that the kingdom of heaven already is yet not completed yet. That's where we stand in the time of history. So we are experiencing the kingdom of heaven now, yet it's not fulfilled and complete. It's coming, and that's the hope of the church. Amen? Only the church, only the faithful, and I like the way this is described, only the faithful and the numberless elect. I like that description. The numberless elect, even though those who come into the kingdom are chosen by God, by His sovereignty and His design, we don't have a number for what that is. The numberless elect. This is a manifestation of God's grace. We, the church, the faithful, we express God's grace. We show the world His grace. He redeemed us and pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness. Hallelujah. We are now part of the kingdom of light. The church, though, even though we benefit by the fullness of grace, it is God's children who receive the most severe judgment. Luke chapter 12 tells us that. And judgment begins at the household of God in 1 Peter chapter 4. So when Jesus uses this term, the sons of the kingdom, he's making a very clear, direct statement to the Jewish elders and the Jewish leaders here. You know better. You've received the truth. You had it in the law. You now have it in me standing before you proclaiming the truth. 
You have heard the truth of the kingdom of light. You have heard the truth of the kingdom. Yet if you reject it, there is no more hope. And you will be cast out into outer darkness. So those who are the sons of the kingdom, according to the word of God, will receive the harshest judgment. And the harshest judgment is will be cast into the outer darkness. See, here's the mistake of many in the church. They think that only those who reject the gospel, who are not part of the church, they're the only ones who are going into the hell. I'm a member of the church. I'm good. Hallelujah. Jesus makes a very clear distinction here with the Jewish leaders. You have no excuse. You have the law. You have me who fulfilled the law. Here is the truth. What will you do with it? If you reject it, you'll be cast into outer darkness. I have a lot more I want to say, but I see the time is running short. So let me just close with this. When you look at the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, I just want to read one section here, verses 38 through 39, as Jesus is talking about collecting the, the, the wheat, uh, separating the wheat from the tares, and talking about a man sows seed, another man sows weeds. Jesus says this, The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And so this parable, it echoes the judgment that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, except in the parable, the sons of the kingdom are the good seed sown by Jesus. Verse 37, but it reflects the same judgment for burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth, verses 41 through 42 of Matthew 13, the fiery furnace. Let me close with this. Hell will not be a place of pleasure. Despite the full revelry of sinful lusts here on earth, hell's not going to be a place where the condemned do their thing and then the redeemed do their thing in heaven. That's not the case. Scripture makes it clear. There will be torment where fire and darkness consume the sinful day and night forever. Now, I want to close with this idea. Darkness and fire do not normally exist at the same time. You ever had a bonfire in your backyard? What happens when you light the bonfire at night? In hell, you're going to have both darkness and eternal burning fire at the same time. The coldness of dark and the painful torment of fire simultaneously. You see why we have to use the imagery of poetry and metaphor for things that we can't grasp? Yet that's how Jesus describes the outer darkness. We all have faith in something. Whether we have faith in ourselves whether we have faith in the riches and pleasures of this life or whether we have faith in Christ. We all have faith in someone or something. Here's my question to you, and here's the thing. And there's so much more that we could go into, but this is just one sermon. And this idea of eternal judgment is going to come up again often in the Gospels, and Matthew's Gospel is, gives us a lot of insight. There's more there in Matthew's Gospel. We'll get back to it in the coming weeks. I don't want to oppress you. I don't want to make you leave here feeling less than, but it's God's word. 
Here's my question to you. Where is your faith? If we can have faith, we all have faith in something. If that's the truth, where is your faith? In other words, who do you trust? You trust yourself? You trust what even Christian media tells you? Do you trust Fox News? Let's just be honest. Evangelical Christians have more faith in Fox News than they do in Jesus Christ. I said it. Go out and tell them. So here's the question. Where is your faith? Because if your faith is in Christ as a genuine trust that He is enough, that His death on the cross is enough, that your sins are forgiven and that is enough, Jesus says if your faith is genuine and He recognizes it as such, you'll be entered into the kingdom of light. But if not, you'll be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever, day and night. That's sobering. Why is that important? Because the life of the Christian is not just about the here and now. It's also about an eternal future that is guaranteed one way or the other, kingdom of light or kingdom of darkness. There is no annihilation of your soul as an act of mercy where the torment will eventually end because your very existence will end. That's a lie from the devil. It sounds compassionate, but it's wrong. And God, is, who is righteous, must cast out those who are not. Now, I'm not a pastor who says that hellfire and brimstone preaching is what you need to save people. Because I, I, let's admit, there's a lot of people who have been scared into the kingdom and they didn't really trust the Lord. Yet we cannot ignore the truth. So as we close today, here's what I want to ask you to do. And, and Peter's been a great guy to do this. He's been here to help us today. We're going to transition into communion. Today's the first Sunday of the month. This is an appropriate time to reflect. As we are told in Scripture to do so. So I'm going to ask a couple of men, uh, Bill and or Paul, if you could come and help me. If both of you want to come, that's fine. This is a time to reflect where we stand before the Lord. This is why our Savior Jesus Christ gave us this gift of the Lord's table. A time of reflection to remember. Because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I've had times in my Christian life where I have I've rejected, I, I've, I've, I've said, please, no, thank you. Because I knew my heart at that moment was not right. I had animosity toward someone else or I was holding a grudge or whatever anger was in me at that moment. There have been times in my life I have said, thank you, but not today. Scripture makes it clear. Get that right first. Let me pray for us. And as Bill and Paul distribute the elements, just hold them and we'll take them together. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. 
And the words of your son Jesus are loving but firm. Those who have faith, genuine faith, he will recognize as such and he will embrace and welcome them into the kingdom of light. But those who have a false self-righteous faith, who trust themselves and not Christ, will be surprised and be cast into outer darkness. And so, dear Lord, you have given us this time to reflect at the table, to remember the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ and the blood that was spilled that paid the price for our sin. I pray, God, that you would use this moment for each and every one of us. Search our hearts. Draw us into a genuine trust, a genuine faith, a genuine praise of the salvation that is offered. This time is for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The Word of God tells us at this time when we partake at the Lord's table. The words of Paul say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is why we do this. Let's proclaim the death of our Savior and his resurrection from the grave. Please partake. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I want to ask as we finish out in a wonderful closing song, the doxology. A beautiful choice, by the way. It's been a while since I've sung the doxology. Hymn number 440, if you want to look at those words there. Let us sing praises to the Lord. But let me also encourage you. If the Lord has been dealing with you this morning in any way, I'm here to pray with you. Ladies, if you need to come and pray, there are ladies here in the church who will pray with you as well. Let this time be a time of renewal in your heart. Let this time be a time of praise to our Savior. Amen? Let's stand and sing.